The great comparative literature and mythology professor Joseph Campbell once said, Follow your bliss, and don't be afraid, and doors will open where you did not know they were going to be. The spirit of the podcast is to learn how former Wego Wildcats followed their bliss, and for us to get inspired and learn from their stories. Welcome to Wego Places. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at West Chicago High School since 2001. Our first interview for the 2019-2020 school year is with David Garcia of the class of 2010. David earned his bachelor's degree in chemistry from Ripon College. He then continued his research at the California Institute of Technology, performing cryo-electron tomography studies of extracellular structures before moving to Oak Ridge National Laboratory to assist with the development of biofuel-producing organisms. David is a graduate advisor for the University of Tennessee Knoxville's iGEM team and is a science and society columnist for the Daily Beacon. I will link to David's articles and his published papers on the Podbean page. Today joining us is David Garcia from the class of 2010. David, what do you do? Uh, so I am a graduate student at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville and Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And uh, so I work in the laboratory of Mitch Dockage as a synthetic biology scientist. So can you describe what uh, synthetic biology is? Sure. So synthetic biology is like a really wide open kind of umbrella term for people that use non-standard DNA to make organisms do new things. So really what we're all, all synthetic biologists do is they take some sort of piece of DNA, some, uh, some sequence that they made outside of the organism, introduce it into the organism and have it do some new uh, and give it some new capability or some new phenotype, if you will. So kind of the classic example that uh, most, uh, most listeners might be familiar with are the organisms that were used in the Gulf Coast to consume oil. So those organisms traditionally are just garbage at their job. They're really bad at eating oil because they only eat it to subsist. So just essentially to survive. So what a lot of synthetic biologists did was take uh, new promoters. Those are the little pieces of DNA that make organisms make more of a specific protein and added better ones into the genes that express the proteins that eat the oil itself. And so in that way, they took a piece of DNA that wasn't native to that organism, uh, popped it into its genome, and all of a sudden it could eat the oil much faster than it did previously. So it's just kind of a really classic example. Some of this technology sounds Promethean in terms of what it could do to help uh, our uh, current condition environmentally uh, with that. Does that would I be wrong to say that that sounds like something that is, is that something that is a CRISPR application on the, on the, uh, the gene editing or am I off on that? Uh, well, that is actually one of the methods that people traditionally use to add in these mutations. So previously we'd been using just very standard, um, addition of genomes by essentially cutting it open. One of the classic systems is called Lambda Red. Uh, but CRISPR just uh, essentially allowed us to be able to make much more, much smaller and much more specific mutations into the genome. So CRISPR is really, uh, you got to think of it like uh, more or less the, the Maserati of gene engineering systems. We'd previously been working with uh, uh, Model Ts maybe uh, as a good comparison. And now we're just, we're off to the races in regards to what we can do with these new tools. Uh, so David, 
kind of walk me through your path from high school all the way to this incredible field of research that you're right you're doing right now. How did you get to where you are? It, um, more or less just uh, by accident. I think like a lot of students that were interested in science, originally I wanted uh, to go into medicine and uh, be a doctor. So part of that involved uh, after I went to college, I did kind of the basic uh, first year, second year science courses. Uh, I went to Ripping College in Wisconsin. And as medical students are one to do, or people that want to go to medical school, I applied to do research in the summer and went uh, to the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where the first time that I was in a lab and started doing actual research, I decided that I liked that way more than, uh, than trying to do medicine. Previously, I DMT training, and that was um, interesting, but it was also much more nerve-wracking and a little bit more tedious than I kind of enjoyed. So after I did my first uh, research experience over the summer, I just fell in love with it and started applying to more and more ambitious research projects until eventually I came to work here at uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory after my after I finished college and just stayed here as a graduate student at the University of Tennessee. What's a typical day like for you working in the lab? Yeah, there are just uh, there's probably no specifically typical day. Overwhelmingly, my job just involves getting to a paper. So really, my job is in 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 kind of the grand scheme of things is to produce some sort of published piece of research. And generally, what I'll do on any given day is just try and push every paper just a little bit forward. So on some days I'll be doing cloning, on some days I'll be doing sequencing, other days I'll be doing chemical analysis. It just really depends on what the next part of the experiment or the next part of the paper is. Um, There will occasionally be days uh, when everything has kind of wrapped up that my job is to write the actual paper and submit it to a journal. You kind of mentioned that you might be working on sequencing or cloning. What is what is the could maybe describe like the type of tools that you work with? Oh, sure. Uh, Every those tools also kind of change pretty dramatically in terms of uh, cloning type work. Right now, the thing that I think most people would find uh, kind of really interesting is we're working a lot with a tool called Mage. It's uh, called it's multiplex automated genome engineering. And it's essentially just a way of adding a lot of mutations into a single genome all at the same time. Uh, The way that we really do this is just by introducing essentially a piece of random DNA that we're interested in sticking into the genome. Uh, But we do this with several pieces of DNA all at the same time. And then we just kind of jam it into the cell, for lack of a better term, using using an electric field that we have a special instrument for called an electroporator. And that DNA gets inserted in there and the cells that take it up survive to the next process. And we keep doing this over and over again until it's just kind of part of the genome. Uh, That's just kind of the genome engineering tool that we use right now in terms of uh, sequencing type work. There's uh, Sanger sequencing instruments that we have at the University of Tennessee that we use all the time. Um, My favorite instrument right now for chemical analysis is called a high performance liquid chromatograph. So an HPLC that lets you know at what point or to what concentration you have specific chemicals in. And that's just part of the current project that we're working on. How quickly do you know that the genome has taken to the um, application that you just provided to it? Because it sounds like you're, in some ways, you're hurrying along what would normally could have taken 
millennia in, in terms of like the 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 uh, adaptation or evolution, if I were uh, to use the right language. Uh, how how quickly do you know that it's beginning to take on the characteristics that you were hoping that it would then absorb? Uh, that depends on the mutation that we're doing over. Uh, the majority of them are anywhere from uh, about five days to to thirty, depending on what kind of thing uh, we're doing. So if we do a single mutation, it could be yeah, probably five days by the time that I know that it's kind of in there, and then a little bit longer for me to verify that there's an actual effect occurring. If we're doing something that's a little bit more ambitious, trying to change four to ten genes all at the exact same time, it could be. It could be months before we really know that it's working. What is the computational power of the type of computers that you're using that would be able to read and process this amount of information? Uh, well, the actual stuff that I use to kind of design my experiments, like to uh, look at a genome and figure out where I want to introduce things, that's all stuff that you can do on your, on your desktop. The desktop that I'm working on right now is just a very basic workstation. And you can view and analyze uh, various kinds of chemical outputs or sequencing data. Um, yeah, you can all you can do all that on. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of work in trying to make software as easy for scientists to use as possible. Um, that's also very ironic, as uh, Oak Ridge is well known as being the supercomputing hub of the planet, especially uh, definitely in the U.S. But uh, I think at the moment it has the most powerful supercomputer. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, and and on the in the world, I don't I don't ever I don't ever use it. I don't need it for my experiments specifically. But a lot of my friends now, it actually. as you are adapting these organisms, as you said, to kind of make them do things that they otherwise would didn't maybe have the propensity to do or or whatever. What are some of the exciting uh, applications that you see maybe unfolding within the next five or ten years, if not sooner than that? Well, in terms of my work, so I specifically work in something called a cell-free metabolic engineering or cell-free synthetic biology. And what we try to do is make it so that um, the goop inside of the cells themselves uh, can be taken out of them and then function more or less as a regular cell. The advantage of this is that you no longer have to keep the cell alive. That goop still more or less functions the exact same way that you would expect it to inside of the cell but now you don't have to keep the cell viable. So what we're trying to kind of do is to use these, uh, to use this, uh, this content of the cell outside of the cell in order to produce things that the cell wouldn't normally be able to produce. So in um, other classical example, you have E. coli that can produce uh, something like insulin. Um, and that E. coli can produce just fine because it isn't, it's not really a drug in a traditional sense, like it's not an antibacterial but it can't really produce something like an antibiotic. That's really, really difficult for it to do. So what we're trying to do is figure out how to make this uh, this uh, intracellular goo be able to make things like antibiotics or medicines or even biofuels um, because it's just things that the cell naturally doesn't want to produce because they're more or less poisons for it. Um, kind of the big pie in the sky idea that my advisor kind of uh, talked to me about when I first got to the laboratory was that he wanted to be able to have this uh, goo and essentially a tiny, a tiny little needle where a soldier, for instance, would add water to it, uh, shake it up, 
in his, put it in his pocket for it to get a little bit of heat and then inject it into someone that needed an antibiotic in the field. That would be incredible. I mean, and just the idea that it, that the vision of this could be something that could produce something that, and as we see the shortages of insulin that are going on within our country right now, if it could be as widely produced as milk or any other commodity because of how they manipulate, as you said, the E. coli, mm-hmm. um, that would be truly revolutionary and, and to be, you know, and, and, and save who met, how many lives as a consequence. What, and, and so how have you seen the speed of technology make your breakthroughs that much more uh, prominent? I mean, has that been something that since you've been doing your research, has the technology been just, have you seen those breakthroughs that much because of, let's say, applications of like, let's say Moore's Law or the type of technology uh, advancements? Is it, is it has it been keeping up with the type of uh, um, work that you're doing or has it been outstripping what you've been able to do, if that makes sense? So kind of the... So kind of one of the fascinating applications of Moore's Law that people have seen in the synthetic biology field has actually been in the ability to synthesize DNA. So as I said previously, a lot of our job is finding DNA sequences that we can introduce into a new organism. The kind of traditional way of getting those pieces of DNA, like the actual physical piece of DNA, has been to make it ourselves in the laboratory uh, from an already existing sequence. As you might imagine, this is actually pretty difficult because you need to then find somewhere in nature where that sequence exists. What a lot of companies have uh, done over the past uh, few decades has been actually make DNA from scratch, where they literally add A to T to C to G and give you the piece of DNA that you asked them for. And that has been getting progressively cheaper as the years have gone on. I think when I first started out, Every individual base pair of DNA, so every A, T, C, or G, would cost you about 50 cents. That doesn't sound like a lot, but if your average gene that you're working with is about a thousand, uh, is about a thousand base pairs, that gets really pricey really fast, depending on how many genes you're working with. I think now the most recent order that I made for DNA was about seven cents a base pair, which is uh, frankly incredible. Uh, at that price, I don't even bother to to do a traditional expression of DNA anymore, just because it's way cheaper uh, in terms of time for me to just ask the company to make it for me and send it to me when it's done. How did your research lead you to find, because you said you work with the ability to manipulate E. coli. How, how does that happen? Like, was is that is E. coli just the most malleable form of uh, bacteria, or how does how does that work? Uh, well, we pick E. coli mostly because it's already very, very well studied. So overwhelmingly, our work is in trying to figure out how to make a a specific system function better. Um, and we pick that system because there's just been a lot of background research already done by other people. So in the past, there've just been about what 70, 80 years of E. coli based research. And the nice thing about these systems is you can cross-apply them to various different kinds of systems after the fact. So the way that science generally works in, um, in this regard is someone picks a model organism, they do their experiments, they learn something from it, and then other people read those papers and try to apply it to their own system. So more than likely in the future, someone's going to look at my uh, pyruvate production paper and see and ask, oh, can I use these lessons to understand how to, use, how to do cell-free biology in eukaryotic cells or in human cells. I, I love that. 
kind of cumulative effect of knowledge within science, you know, that someone's that, that your work has been built upon the shoulders of other people. And then now your work will then be, you know, beyond your years will then also be uh, used to advance uh, that as well. I just, I think that's just the coolest part about um, culture and science and, and the cumulative effect of our, our knowledge with that. It's just so, so neat. What, what continues to excite you about your work? I, I, I really, I really don't know. I just really, really like doing this kind, this kind of work. The, the actual specific, um, as far as like a big scientific breakthrough, that's never really been like kind of the thing that drives me. I just kind of really enjoy working with my hands and having something that is produced because of it. Uh, I think in the, in that sense, I am very much like, uh, very much like my father, except instead of, uh, working on cars i just like working on dna it's uh it's it's really interesting to be able to solve kind of these small puzzles that you that they they don't really come off as puzzles but really understanding how the metabolism of an organism works and how to tinker with it and change small parts of it has just been um really the reason I stuck with it and why I decided to pick this specific field. It's so interesting what you were, when you were describing there about solving these little puzzles and all of that, there's a famous uh, psychologist, his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he writes about this idea of being in a flow state of like, when you are so locked in to the intrinsic motivations of loving what you do it's just like you just perfectly described that moment where it's like you don't it's not work it's this very incredible sense of satisfaction upon completing these puzzles and challenges it's like the same type of satisfaction that you got when you figured out how to you know achieve or unlock something in a video game when you were younger it's just now it's applied to something that is obviously much more um, in, in importance in, in what you do with your, your research. Ah, so, so you've been so generous with your time, Dave. And I was wondering when we're finishing up with our, our interview here, what, um, bits of advice could you give current Wildcats about success along the way? I think the, the thing that I ended up finding the most useful in regards to just moving on to the next step, as it were, has just been to find someone that understands what you need to do already. So mentorship is probably like the most important thing that people need to understand and specifically finding people that know what you should be doing and actively asking them for help. So just kind of passively expecting people to give you the right advice, I don't think works very well. The reason I've really been able to kind of make progressively bigger steps was as a result of um, some of my first uh, research experience as a as an undergraduate was in the laboratory of Dr. Eric Matson at uh, UW Oshkosh and I asked him for a lot of help when I started to apply to different research programs and it was because he was actively essentially going out and trying to help me uh in uh, in any way that he could that I was able to progressively make bigger and bigger steps that's how I ended up finding a job at Caltech how I ended up getting accepted to the Browson Center here at uh, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, so that's probably one of those things that you need, uh, that younger students need to understand because they don't know what the right answer is. And specifically, if they come from a background, as I think a lot of students at, uh, at West Chicago um, 
in West Chicago come from, they probably don't even have parents that know how to apply to college. So those are all things that you need to actively ask people for. I think that's really great advice is to, you know, to be bold enough uh, to seek help and, um, and, and not be afraid kind of check the ego. And, and, uh, and I like, I like that idea about looking for that mentor that you can trust that will help kind of guide the way. That's, that's a, that's great advice. Uh, David, thank you so much uh, for your time today. And I bet I will be asking for another interview in a year or two from you to see where your research and where you are in a couple of years. When do you, uh, when do you finish up your graduate degree? I'm hoping that I will be done sometime next year. Uh, that's the kind of time that my fellowship ends. So I'd like to be, I'd like to be done by the, by that point. So hopefully by uh, May of next year, I will be walking down. Uh, I will be, I will be walking down as a, as a, as Dr. David Garcia. That's amazing. And what we do after you become Dr. David Garcia? Uh, after that, I become postdoc David Garcia. So kind of the natural progression of a PhD that's interested in starting their own laboratory is uh, doing grad school, then doing a postdoc in an established scientist laboratory where you're kind of much more in charge of your own projects. And then after that, you start your own laboratory, get postdocs yourself and undergrad and graduate students and start to um, no longer be in the lab, just kind of direct research. David, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's not a problem, <laughs> Mr. Turnbull. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to We Go Places. If you know of a great guest for this podcast, send me an email at b-t-u-r-n- B-A-U-G-H at D-9-4 dot O-R-G.